Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're talking about a continual topic of conversation, revenue recognition, and more specifically, growth versus net. Frequent guest to the show and PwC partner, Angela Ferguson, is joining me remotely to fill us in and answer the most commonly asked questions. So, Angela, thank you so much for joining me again today. You're one of my regular guests and appreciate having you back. And looking forward to our conversation about gross versus net. Maybe to start things off, I know from my own experience when I was an audit partner, this seemed like a continual topic of conversation. But can you share with our listeners some background about the guidance and why it generates so many questions? Yeah, sure, Heather. Happy to be back. Um, So to give a little bit of a history lesson, um, the initial guidance on gross versus net presentation of revenue came out back in the late 90s. So it was EITF 99-19. And this is around the time of the internet boom, if you remember. So more companies were starting to sell goods and services online. And this really raised the debate about whether those companies should be showing as their revenue the gross proceeds from selling things online or just the net commission they received as basically a selling agent. So that was really what generated the first round of guidance in this area. And then, as you noted, we've continued to see challenging fact patterns over the years. So when the new revenue standard came out, um, ASC 606, it carried over uh, many of the same concepts as the original gross versus net guidance, but then tried to add a little bit more structure and really link better to the core principles of um, ASC 606 and tried to make this analysis just even a little bit easier. I think what we've found is that although uh, you know there have been some good changes to the guidance and we'll, we'll go through all of that, that there are still going to be challenging fact patterns. In many cases, it really has not gotten easier. And in fact, um, even with 606, if you, you may remember, it really took them like two, uh, two bites at the apple here because they issued the original guidance and then had to issue a subsequent amendment. So, I mean, it definitely just continues to be a, an area that, that's challenging to navigate, which is why we, we keep getting questions in this area. All right. So then, Angela, as helpful context, you know, you gave the background. This has been out there as an issue for more than 20 years. And as you pointed out, even with 606, took a couple times for them to go through it. Why is there so much focus in this area? Well, there's always been a lot of focus on revenue just being the top line number and an important metric for companies. And as you could imagine, when you're talking about gross presentation versus net presentation, this can be a really big difference in numbers as far as what you're showing as your top line. And it really also reflects like what is your true business? If you're the actual seller of goods and services, that's one way to describe your business. But if you're just a selling agent recognizing a commission, that's a really different way to describe and think about what your business model is. So it's important to you know, get that right so you're appropriately reflecting you know, your business model to the reader of the financials. Makes a lot of sense. So then, Angela, let me pick up on something you said, which is that this 
guidance, the initial guidance really arose because of the boom in the online business. Is that something that where we continue to see most of our questions or has it expanded beyond that? Well, interestingly, uh, you do see gross versus net questions come up across really all industries. It's definitely not a tech company um, issue. It really comes up anytime you've got more than one party involved in fulfilling a contract, whether that's multiple parties in a distribution channel or it's using subcontractors. So it's very common to have multiple parties involved and that can raise a gross versus net question. If I was to think about a couple of recent trends we might be seeing right now, um, yeah, we've, we've definitely seen in the past few years uh, new emerging business models that involve you know, companies providing like a technology platform, and that's used for you know, other parties to provide different kinds of services, whether that's delivery services or payment processing services or a variety of other ways of connecting you know, sellers and buyers. It's just become a very popular business model. And those always raise gross versus net questions. Um, we've also just seen companies continue to e- evolve their distribution networks. So they may be partnering with uh, new distribution partners. And every time you do that, maybe you have a slightly different kind of arrangement, which may have uh, different gross versus net implications. So we've seen that. And then, of course, just transitioning to ASC 606, the new revenue standard, has caused people to take a closer look in this area where maybe it's not kind of always done the accounting a certain way, but when adopting a new standard and looking at it through a slightly different lens, it's been getting more focus as well. So Angela, then with all of that background, can you walk us through the model? Sure. So we're looking at... Um, the principal versus agent considerations in ASA 606, just to level set the guidance we're looking at. And this guidance is going to apply, like I was mentioning, anytime you've got more than one party involved in fulfilling a contract with a customer. And we're looking at this guidance generally from the perspective of what I'll call the intermediary. But you'll, I'll go through an example to show what I'm talking about there. An example I'll kind of use to walk through the model is, let's say we have a company that operates a website to sell um, home office furniture to customers. We're all probably thinking about, you know, building up our home office these days. We'll use that as an example. But the office furniture is being supplied by another party, a supplier. So the question we're trying to answer is whether the company is selling office furniture So are they the principal in selling furniture to the buyers? Or is it providing a service of connecting sellers of furniture to the interested buyers? So are they really an agent arranging for another party to uh, sell office furniture? So that's the question we're trying to answer. And the model um, goes through this in two steps. The first step is to identify what's called the specified good or service. And this kind of goes back to the foundation of the revenue standard, which is understanding what your performance obligations in the contract are. 
And so the first thing we're going to do is identify what are the goods and services that the end user is getting, is being transferred to the end user. And it could be more than one thing. And so we're going to use the distinct guidance in the revenue standard to sort through whether it's one thing or more than one thing. And if it's more than one thing, you're going to do the gross versus net analysis on each identified good or service that you that you come up with. So that's the first step. The second step is that you're then going to assess whether the company controls the specified good or service before it's transferred to the end user. And then again, control is a is an underlying concept in the revenue standard, right? which is uh, defined as the ability to direct the use of and obtain substantially all the remaining benefits from an asset. So let's go back to my example. Um, in my example, the specified good or service that's going to the end user is the office furniture. Pretty straightforward there. So then the question is, does the company control the office furniture before it's transferred to the end user? And in some cases, this could be uh, relatively straightforward. You know, if the company is actually taking possession of the office furniture, they take inventory risk, they could use it to satisfy any contract, then it's probably pretty clear that they control the furniture. But if um, you could have other arrangements where the supplier is like drop shipping the furniture directly to the buyer, and then it's not going to be quite as clear whether the company actually controls that furniture before it's transferred to the buyer. Yes, so Angela, it's funny. I, I try as a rule not to let accounting invade my personal life, but now I'm never going to see that notice shipped directly from the vendor in the same way again. So you're thinking, I wonder how that impacts the accounting. <laughs> exactly. And I try not to let that happen. But since that question is there, if you see the message shipped directly from the vendor, what are the considerations? Well, then it may be not um, completely clear from just looking at the control definition, you know, whether the company is actually controlling the furniture. So that's where the standard gives you some additional factors to consider, which we call the indicators of whether the company controls the specified good or service. There are three indicators provided. The first one is that the company is primarily responsible for fulfilling the promise to provide the specified good or service. This is a you know who's responsible for the satisfaction of the of the buyer. You know who's responsible if something goes wrong. You know these are the kinds of things to think about there. The second indicator is the company takes inventory risk before the good or service is transferred to the end user. The third indicator is that the company has discretion in establishing the price that the end user pays for the good or service. So who is it that's setting the price that you are ultimately gonna pay for that furniture? Is it the website operator or is it the supplier? That's one of the indicators. So a few things to point out about these indicators is that you know, sometimes people want to skip directly to look at these three indicators, but you can't skip that question of, of control. So you first do want to think about whether um, the company controls the good or service. And it may even be clear from the control definition that they do or do not control 
but you need to do that first before you skip directly to the indicators. And the indicators are meant to support the conclusion that you get from the control definition. They're not meant to like override what conclusion you might otherwise come to just looking at the definition. The other thing to, to keep in mind is that they aren't a checklist. So it's not like you could just say, oh, I have two out of three, so there's my answer. You know, unfortunately, it's not that easy. You really need to think about them in the context of the total situation. And some indicators might have more weight than others, depending on the, the specific facts and circumstances. So it's not just majority rules that right. even if you only have one, you may conclude that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So then Angela, what about if I'm looking at this from the perspective of the supplier, how would they think through this transaction? Yeah. So they, they have a similar analysis they're doing, but it's from a slightly different perspective. So the supplier is going to be the one providing the furniture and it's the question of who are they providing it to? Who is their customer? Is their customer the intermediary or is their customer the end buyer? So that's the question they're asking. If the supplier's customer is the intermediary, then their revenue is just whatever price the intermediary pays for the furniture. So the company operating the website. If the supplier's customer is the end consumer, then their revenue would be the price the end consumer pays, which would be presumably a higher price. And then there would be a, a like a, an expense for this commission that they're paying to the intermediary. So some of the concepts that they will think through would be the same. They're just looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And one thing that does sometimes come up, although it's not terribly common, is that sometimes the supplier may conclude that the end buyer is their customer, but they don't have the information about how much that end buyer is paying. So just based on their relationship with the intermediary, the intermediary may have pricing discretion and you know, be able to charge the end customer you know, whatever they want, but they don't provide that information to the supplier. And so it's a little bit unusual that you would base your accounting on the availability of information. But in that case, the supplier, if they don't know the total gross amount paid by the end buyer, then they will just recognize the net amount they receive from the intermediary as revenue. And I guess that's a good example of a case where the intermediary has the discretion over the price, mm-hmm. and yet the supplier concluded that their customer was the end consumer. So that's right. Uh, that's why it's a little bit of an unusual situation because then you've got obviously strong evidence from some of the other indicators that despite the pricing discretion, um, the intermediary doesn't have control. All right. So then, Angela, we've been using this office furniture example. And obviously, as we've discussed, something everyone can relate to and you know, seems relatively straightforward from an analysis perspective. But I know the situations get a lot more complicated very quickly. So what are some of the more challenging types of fact patterns that we commonly see? Yeah, that's right. It, the assessment is 
a lot easier when we're thinking about a tangible good. I think it's just easiest, easier for us to wrap our head around being able to control a tangible product. So the some of the fact patterns that get more challenging are especially when we're talking about a service. So whether the company is controlling a service that's performed by another party. There are a few different ways you would think about controlling a service. And so I'll go through a few examples. Um, the first possibility is that you obtain the right to services that are going to be provided by another party. And the common example here is an airline ticket. So a travel agent might um, resell airline tickets if they actually pre-purchase the tickets so they control that ticket or right to the airline service, then they will be the principal for sale of the ticket, even though the travel agent is not the one actually providing the, the flight, right? Another example is when a company may integrate services provided by others into one single output that they're providing to the end user. So an example of this might be if the company is providing a, a building that's being constructed right, to an end user and they're having to subcontract various things to other parties. So they may have somebody doing the plumbing or doing the electrical work, but all of that's being integrated into this one single output, which is the construction of the building to the end user. The final example is probably the one we see most often, which is when the company is directing another party to provide a service on their behalf. So an example of this is if you're entering into a contract to provide office maintenance services to a, a customer, but you're subcontracting that to um, another party, but you would be directing that other party about which buildings to do the maintenance on, you know, when to do it, how to do it. You're basically directing them to perform on your behalf, but still, still taking ultimate responsibility for fulfilling the contract and providing the services. You're just subcontracting it out to another party. So those are really like the three ways you might navigate the concept of control. And then if you're looking at the indicators, what we find is that you know inventory risk is usually not applicable because we're talking about a, a service. So then the other two indicators become the primary ones you look to. And here's where primarily responsible becomes really important because you're going to be looking at who is ultimately responsible for those services, the quality of the services and the services actually being completed. And pricing, you know, is also going to be helpful, but I'd say pricing on its own is probably not going to, to carry the day in these analyses. It's usually just going to be supportive of the rest of your analysis. That's sort of thinking through some of the challenges with services. You know, some other things that can uh, come up that can make this analysis difficult include things like internet advertising where you've got multiple parties involved. In fact, it can be a number of parties that are involved in an internet advertising arrangement and things are happening you know, within a moment of time, you know, bidding and placement and 
rendering of an ad. And so trying to sort through which party is doing what and who's responsible can be difficult. Yes, I'm tempted to ask you the answers to these questions, but I know the answer is always, it depends. And it really does depend on the facts and circumstances. So I think this is a good place for a reminder that it's always important to make sure you understand all the facts of the arrangement. But Angela, what are some other good reminders for our our listeners if they're dealing with these types of situations? Yeah, I mean, I already said this once, but I'm going to say it again, which is not to skip straight to the indicators. Because I'd say the, the main thing we see when people come to us with questions is that they're already, you know, talking about pricing and, and inventory risk, but they haven't even stepped back to to figure out like what are the specified goods and services going to the end user. And whether it's more than one thing or just a single output can really change the analysis. So you have to do that part of the model first. You know, you really need to go through the steps of the model. So don't just skip directly to the indicators. The second reminder is along the lines of what you were saying, Heather, is that you do need to read all the contracts between the parties and understand the relationships. I mean, you can't do a gross versus net analysis without reading all of the contracts and really understanding what the responsibilities are of each of the parties that's involved in the arrangement. And I guess, Angela, to pause you, this would be an important place if you're the accountant to be talking to the business people involved to make sure you really understand what's going on with this arrangement. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd say it goes even further than that because like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, this all goes into how you you view your business model and how you describe your business. So you also want to make sure what you're concluding from an accounting standpoint is consistent with how the company describes its business, whether that's to investors and analysts or to its customers, right? it all needs to sort of reconcile and hang together. In my example, like, do you view your business as selling office furniture or do you view your business as just providing a website, right? It's a very different way of of thinking about your business model. Um, And then the last reminder I would give is that we do see companies look at economic risk. You know, like I'm, you know, have... A, a variable margin, or I could possibly end up in a loss, and will assume that because you have economic risk, then you're automatically the principal. And this may have been more heavily weighted, I think, under the guidance prior to ASC 606, but it's not always going to uh, translate to control. So when we're thinking about the, the 606 model, and the lens of control, economic risk is not always going to mean you are the principal. So it's something to to keep in mind. So Angela, this is probably stating the obvious, but I assume disclosures will also be important in this area. Of course they will, right? And this is often going to be a significant judgment. And one of the key disclosure requirements in the revenue standard is disclosing significant judgments. So this is definitely going to be one of those. And this is an area that we've seen um, the SEC staff comment on. I mean, especially when 
a company isn't providing disclosure about how they thought about control. There may be just talking about some of the indicators, but don't talk about the whole model, or maybe it's not even clear where they've concluded on principal agent for their specific revenue transactions. So, you know, do see this area where companies can continue to improve through the, the disclosures and clarifying how they thought through the model. Another um, important disclosure could be if you're in the situation where you've concluded you're an agent, but you are taking on perhaps some risks, maybe you have that economic risk, even though you're an agent, that could be something important to disclose to the reader so they they understand, again, that possibility uh, of of having some variability, even though you're an agent. And then Angela... Where's the best place to go if our listeners still have questions? We have a chapter in our revenue guide that talks about principal versus agent, and that would be chapter 10. So we we go through um, all the guidance there and a few examples as well. So a good place to go for more information. Great. Thank you very much. And as you know, we always wrap up now with a positivity question. And uh, today's is actually looking a little ahead because I know your kids are going back to school and my son is actually going off as a freshman at William & Mary. So back to school is very top of mind for me. I'm curious what either you or your kids are looking forward to with the new school year, especially given since you and I are both in California many of the kids, including ours, would be starting online? Well, it, it is um, going to be a very different school year, at least at first for us, um, you know, all starting online. But I, I am looking forward to a little bit more structure to the day. Uh, right? I mean, the summer is fun and it can be fun to um, not have that structure. But after a while, you, you'd like to get back to more of a schedule and you know, have certain things that need to, to get done during the day to feel like you're being more productive. So I'm certainly looking forward to that. Yes, I think many working parents can um, empathize with that, that point of view. So, uh, well, Angela, as always, very nice to chat with you. And thank you very much for all the insight. Of course, happy to. Join me back here this Thursday for the next episode in our What's Next Summer podcast series. We'll be turning our attention to Washington, taking a look at the latest on what's happening in terms of policy development as of August 2020 and what companies should continue to focus on as we move through the recovery. And for all your other accounting needs, join me every Tuesday when we cover the fundamentals of accounting. Subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.